0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is February 11th, 2021, and this is episode 226. I'm Strachlan de And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a shorter potpourri episode of a random assortment of news from decriminalization to COVID to the Green Party and much, much more. It's just been a busy week for both of us. I've been in house hunting hell, and I don't recommend it.
1: The uh, Faint River Real Estate Market is fun as ever.
0: Yeah, it's hay. We put in a offer 11,000 over asking on something, but we didn't make, we put conditions down. People don't like those apparently. So here we are. Thank you to the 102 people who contribute every month to the show to help keep it going. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicos, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstodaynews free dash trial. Let's jump into the first story. Decriminalization might be on the horizon here in BC. News this week comes that the provincial government, specifically BC Minister of Mental Health and Addiction Sheila Malcolmson, has written a letter to Federal Health Minister Patty Hajdu, asking for BC to be exempted from the Criminal Code provisions criminalizing small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use. This follows the City of Vancouver Council and Mayor Kennedy Stewart writing a similar letter recently, which on the Cambie Report Matthew and I thought was a bit ambitious, not bad, but not likely to go anywhere. But now things are seeming to. Be gaining traction.
1: Yeah, I was actually a little surprised to see that go somewhere. Kennedy Stewart's uh, mayoral tenures basically being very unremarkable, and there's been a lot of letters sent out with nothing to show for it. And this might be the rare exception.
0: So it's interesting to see this change and to see this shift go forward. It's positive, I think. We are. We just also had news from the PC coroner that 2020 was the most toxic deadly year for overdose deaths due to the toxic illicit drug supply in history with 1,716 people losing their lives last year. A 74% increase over 2019 when things looked like they were starting to get better. The stats in the news release were pretty terrible. Toxic drugs claimed more lives than motor vehicle crashes, homicide, suicides, and prescription drug-related deaths combined. 69% of those People were age 30 to 59, and 80 percent, 81 percent of them were men. 84 percent of these deaths occurred inside, 56 percent in private residence. So, pretty much being middle aged ish man at home right now, I am in the <laughs> highest demographic, most likely demographic there. Uh, another only 14 percent versus occurred in vehicles or on streets or sidewalks or otherwise outside. What was the glimmer of hope was that no deaths for all of 20 were 2020 were reported at supervised consumption sites or drug overdose prevention sites, once again showing that these harm reduction approaches seem to work and seem to work really well. And so when advocates and police chiefs are calling for an end to the war on drugs through decriminalizing, it seems like it's the step we have to take.
1: Yeah, it does seem like the right direction to go in. <sighs> Doing it in a piecemeal, like carving out different parts of the country with ministerial exemptions seems like a really weird way to do it uh, and far from ideal. Like th- There's things we want to be, you allow... Regional variation on you know' we're a federation for a reason there's benefits to that, but the fundamentals here aren't going to really change from whether or not you're in Vancouver Toronto or Wawa or you know a- anywhere really in Canada so it's weird to do this in a well we're not actually going to do it unless a local politician writes to us sort of way that the fed seem to be approaching it
0: I Like we get the political argument for it, that it's easier to exempt BC than it is to pick fights with Doug Ford and Jason Kenney especially, who would not be supportive of this approach. I think there is also an argument that you need a government that's willing to invest in harm reduction and wraparound supports and not take that kind of cruel approach. Like we're seeing the Alberta government cut drug supervised consumption sites and cut funding... To these otherwise harm reduction approaches, and if you leave, if you cut those off, maybe decriminalizing drugs isn't. I'm not saying you should leave cops to do with it. It's just a mess there. So I agree, it should be done nationwide. BC also could still move a bit faster. It's an even more kind of work around, not ideal situation to follow Dr. Henry's advice from a few years ago and ask the police to just lay off a lot more and do an effective decriminalization in the meantime here. Doing the ministerial exemption though, I think would be good. And if we can see that come forward, if this is what the majority NDP government is willing to do with perhaps less fear of a quick election to come and the inevitable screams from the right wing, maybe this is good.
1: I'm not sure we you really say this has anything to do with them being a majority government. The Greens were going to support this if they were still in a coal- or confidence and supply arrangement. It's the, the only thing is it pushes the Nets' poll time they have to go to the polls back a ways. But like, there is absolutely no reason this could not have been done a year ago or two.
0: In any case, it's good to see it and hopefully it moves forward.
1: Well, from illicit drugs to the broader health care system here in BC, the Provincial Health Services Authority is going to be needing a new CEO as Benoit Morin was let go this week following, I think, allegations we talked about sometime last year around misspending, and then uh, a report was issued this week regarding some conflict of interest allegations. The report did not fully substantiate all of the accusations, but nevertheless, there was enough issues identified that it no longer became tenable for him to remain in the position and was fired by the minister this week.
0: This is a pretty big shakeup. The PHSA has been in rough shape for a while and the Ministry of Health and Minister Dix have been getting involved and more than would normally be the case, even to the point where I think they're signing off on all medium and large level procurements at this point. The alleged conflict of interest dates back to the start of the pandemic when it was alleged that Mora when it was alleged that Morin ordered respirators from a Montreal based company that he was involved with. And I guess it's because uh, he had the same name as someone involved in that company, as one of the founders of the company. So rumors within the health authority were that he founded this company and then as the PHSA director ordered $7 million worth of respirators in a kind of not normal procedures because it was the start of the pandemic and respirators were in very short supply. We'll all recall if we go back turns out that's not fully the case, and I guess it's just a bad coincidence. Nevertheless, there was a lot of internal frustrations about this, and three senior execs and the chief financial and the chief internal auditor of the PHSA all ended up being fired by Morin. As the report concludes, all of the employees' departures were at least in part related to a perceived lack of loyalty and or friction with the CEO. So essentially, dissent became not an option within the workplace there, and people didn't trust him, and he didn't trust his staff. And anyone who's ever been in that kind of workplace knows it sucks, and you can't do anything, and eventually something needs to break. Or you all sit down and have a lot of heartfelt, awkward conversations until you can find a way forward. They chose the first route, it looks like. In terms of funding, the federal government had an announcement I believe it was today, yesterday, about transit funding. Yesterday. Ottawa Ottawa is going to be giving $3 billion a year in guaranteed transit funding to municipalities starting in 2026, starting five years from now. And in the meantime, there'll be an additional $5.9 billion for stimulus projects.
1: So this gets tacked on to the already announced projects that kind of run up the clock until 2026, which then this has just a fixed dearly amount onto. <sighs> Nevertheless, it's one of the examples of this government's bad habit of announcing stuff after one or two elections time away, rather than just announcing things that they can actually say they will do because they know they will still be in power at the
0: time. Like on the positive municipalities have been calling for a permanent transit transfer fund to be set up for a long time just to create some stability in terms of mid to long-term planning like it's possible this could still be torn up but three billion a year in terms of the federal budget is it's not insignificant but it's also not on a hundred or 10 billion or 20 billion dollar fund
1: it's relatively small things can sit. when you factor in that this is going out across multiple cities. Even if you just take the large three, that's 1 billion a year in funding that you have going to Toronto, Montreal and us here in Vancouver. And that doesn't actually buy you a huge amount of new infrastructure, each of those cities could easily be using the $3 billion a year to do a lot of, well, frankly, overdue transit expansion. And when the federal government can basically borrow at zero or negative real interest rates and has been not shy on spending money until in the recent year or so. It just seems like such a pretty small amount relative to the size of the investments that are needed.
0: I think it gets difficult to think about transit funding. When we talk about a new SkyTrain extension here in Vancouver, for example, we're talking about a project that'll take five to 10 years to build out to plan, to study, to do all of it. And so if that project is going to be 10 billion, it's actually only a billion a year. So obviously we'll need more than that, but this money I'm assuming will end up being expected to be matched in some part by the provinces and possibly contributed uh, from local municipalities. Like I agree with you, let's throw a lot more money at transit, both in the short term when it's cheap and make sure there's a long-term fund. But I do think this is still overall better than, it's obviously better than not having it, but I think it's on the net probably a pretty positive announcement.
1: Yeah, more or less agree with that. There's obviously we can nitpick this, but having at least somewhat of a stable funding stream would be a huge deal. It's been a perennial problem in the lower mainland here, finding a stable source of funding for transit and instead it tends to come in waves and spurts and at least knowing there's going to be a consistent input of federal dollars will be useful nevertheless these are one of those things that's going to pay a lot of long term dividends for the country both in terms of the immediate supports to making the cities run better just at a physical infrastructure level as well as working towards the climate goals just feels weird that when they're promising something this far out they aren't willing to attach a larger dollar value to it but one person who won't be having as much chance to talk about the dollar values is Pierre Polyever who was announced this week will be leaving his post as shadow minister for finance. The uh, conservative party calls their critic roles, which honestly is a great tile, and I wish more parties would use it. Um, and instead, he is going to be going to the industry and innovation file and going to be replaced as the finance critic by BCMP Ed Fast.
0: I don't think I know much about Ed Fast. I have heard the name a few times.
1: He's a MP from one of the Valley Ridings. I cannot recall which one at the moment. Havisford. Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, fair, fairly typical conservative. I, I don't think there's a held a f- couple ministerial positions, I think, or uh Relatively senior posts in the Harper government.
0: He In 2009, I'm reading his Wikipedia, he led to a motion that renamed the Huntington border crossing to the Abbotsford-Huntington port of entry. He was also the Minister of International Trade.
1: Right. I think environment as well. So yeah, former cabinet minister.
0: He was accused on a point of order in 2014 of making a gun gesture and saying boom in the direction of Nikki Ashton during question period. Uh, He denied it and then video showed him saying it, but he said it was misinterpreted. What a Wikipedia art this guy's got.
1: (laughs) But regardless, his controversies or I think media highlights are significantly less prominent than Pierre Pallievres and... That is probably a good thing because I've said countless times on the pod that one of the conservatives' biggest problems is their inability to modulate their outrage. And when everything is a giant scandal that strikes at the very foundations of our government and its competencies and all of this, people just tune it out after a while. And I think more so than anyone, Polly ever has a tendency to take situations where the opposition ought to have the government dead to rights and make it feel like just an example of partisan mudsling. And that's ultimately hurt the conservatives quite a bit and has made it hard for them to land the punches they really need to on the government. So taking someone who's I think a little more circumspect at times may be a better option for them and strike a better tone.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how fast performs in the role. We were looking at the list of other shadow cabinet shuffles in the Conservative caucus there and so many names didn't pop out to either of us as familiar. Two longstanding conservative MPs have recently announced their retirement, Peter Kent and BC's Kathy McLeod, who represents Kamloops, Thompson, Caribou. And I know her name mostly from seeing election signs when driving the coca during that time of year. And it's does is the conservative bench deep enough at this point to run a strong campaign or lead a strong government after? And You know, I think that gets asked about a lot of opposition parties because you don't always know who these people are until they're in government because they just don't get the attention. But one thing Polyev, for good or bad, did was at least capture attention. So a little bit of loss of limelight, hopefully replaced by just competent governance or approach to governance there. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. the conservatives are at their best when they have that slightly boring but competent managerial energy to them, which is not necessarily – it's what Harper had and was able to convey the message that he had a grasp on the big issues and could be counted on to, even if he didn't like what he did, at least steer the ship through difficult waters. That is not the impression that uh, Polly ever gives off. And he's much more kind of a strapper. which is – I don't think that's what Canadians are actually looking for in governments generally. And when you have a, someone like this who arguably outshines the leader quite a bit in terms of their media profile and their ability to attract attention, it's not really good for – the party's long-term electoral prospects or the leader's ability to connect with Canadians. And I think O'Toole's generally tried, but not always succeeded at projecting more of the other image I was talking about. But yeah, when you have MPs like Ever, Rempel, taking up a lot of the limelight, it's tough.
0: So yeah, ultimately, I think good move by O'Toole. One of the other parties having a bit of... Troubled waters these days is the federal Green Party under Annamie Paul. There's a piece by David Aiken in for Global News talking about how a number of senior party members, including their 2019 campaign director, Jonathan Dickey, and the past interim leader and past president of the party, Joanne Roberts, have sent letters to the federal council recently, as the end of November last year. Expressing concerns about some of the internal conflicts following party executive director Pratik Awashti's decision to quit recently, the letter quote says, A pattern of poor governance has taken hold at the Green Party. Qualified, effective, and innovative professionals within our party are often pushed away. We as a party must do better. And this also comes out as news that Annamie Paul intends to run in Toronto Centre again for the third time, Whenever the next election is,
1: which is uh, which is just a incredibly dumb move on her part. I don't think there's any other way to like it's strategically a giant blunder. Unless she's going to somehow manage to pull off one of the biggest political miracles ever and disrupt a incredibly safe liberal seat. The liberals held on to that seat in 2011 when they were nearly wiped out. It is gonna. It would take a lot to have that seat go to any other party, and this is this is basically just guarantees that she will not be in Parliament when the next so Parliament Paul is ran there, and and that's ultimately going to undermine the ability of the party to be effective because without a leader in Parliament, it general it's not only harder to do the basic legislative work that parties try and do, but it's harder to get the media attention that the Ottawa-focused political press tour is there for. <sighs> like, I am honestly trying to wrap my head around this decision in anything but it and see how it could make any sense, and I am just drawing a complete blank.
0: So, as far as I can tell, Paul lives or is deeply connected with the writing. She ran in that constituency in 2019 and got 7% of the vote. In the by-election recently, she got 33% of the vote as party leader. So there is clearly a good emphasis behind her. I think she's got the sense that she can build upon that and possibly peel off some of the NDP's 17% and maybe some of the Liberals as well and just piece it together. One of the other things that comes out in Aiken's piece is that within days the party is set to announce a new national campaign director that party sources say will be tasked with stealing votes from the NDP's 2019 vote. They are targeting as many as two dozen NDP seats that they want to turn green, which for people who were in the it seems weird to me for the ndp like i get ideologically why the ndp and green would be competing for many of the same seats particularly out here in bc but in terms of like the good of the country from their point of view if any of these lead to vote splitting where maybe a conservative squeaks back through on the island that would seem like bad from both of their i'm not saying the ndp and green should merge but maybe they're just spiteful for the Greens, or maybe they're just spiteful for the NDP going after Green votes for so long.
1: Yeah, I think the likelihood of that is, they're not likely to merge. I don't really know about the voters, but the actual partisans, I don't think I've seen two parties in Canada where the partisans hate each other quite as much as the NDP and Greens do. There are some angered. Under the, not even under the surface, just out in the open there. And I think it would be fairly hard to, to see a merger happening there. But yeah, it, that that is just the general reality, particularly with the path the Greens have increasingly found themselves on, that they are competing for the votes of the NDP. If you look at what the the policy that they mention in both articles, it's talking about stuff like a national housing strategy, decriminalization of drug possession, coupled with safe supply, to recognition of foreign education credentials. If I just listed those off and asked you to guess the party, you would have no idea whether or not they were a green or an NDP person saying that. And it's not really clear what the big distinguishing factor is beyond... A disagreement over prioritization of the same policy set. Like, you didn't. I think generally think of it were the NDP cares a lot, or the NDP and the Greens both care about social justice and the environment. They ranked which one is the absolute top priority slightly differently. That's the only real difference in terms of what where they stand, like the big policy questions, particularly in the direction both parties have been trending over the past decade or so. It absolutely made sense why the Greens would actually want to target NDP votes. I'm actually, if anything, more surprised they actually just admitted it because... The Greens like to pretend they're not a normal political operation, which is usually to their detriment. Because when they talk about doing politics differently, more often than not, that just means doing politics badly. Like running in one of the safest liberal seats in the country as leader. But that's actually doing politics smart, going after NDP votes, because that's where... The easiest votes to pick up probably are given the party's position. Well, just the last thing
0: I want to come back to in terms of what, why she would run in Toronto Centre, I think the other thing to mention is that she probably can't run in Saanich Gulf Islands because Elizabeth May is going to hold on to that seat until I. who knows when.
1: So, the actual nomination forms that candidates have to follow with the election stand I believe requires the party leader to sign off on any nomination. So it could be the case that if she really wanted to force the issue, she could have the Green nomination in Saanich Gulf Islands. Now, knowing Elizabeth May, there is probably a 98% chance that gets pretty nasty with may end up running as an independent. But there are definitely ways to try and force the issue.
0: I have no evidence to the effect, but when we just led a story about internal conflict within the Greens, and then we just ended suggesting trying to force the issue would create some internal conflict, maybe we found our answer to what's happening inside.
1: Perhaps. But (laughs) that. Still doesn't really explain the Toronto Centre decision, because there are parts of Ontario that are more green-friendly. I think Guelph comes to mind. You could also maybe see her trying to run in one of the ridings where provincial greens in various uh, places hold seats there. There are definitely better options if you rule out Sandwich, Twelve Islands to run if you're the Green Party leader, then Toronto Centre. It's maybe not quite as bad as Fort McMurray, but it's not far off in terms of a, a long shot. The Green Party's electoral strategy isn't the only unclear things that have arisen over the past year. As the Serb had some miscommunications around it. And it was announced this week that by the government that... Self-employed Canadians won't be forced to repay, sir, due to the CRA's unclear guidance on who should and should not apply and who is not eligible. So back when this was rolling out, geez, nearly a year ago now, uh, the eligibility requirement on whether the minimum $5,000 earnings from the past year was net or gross income and... That was not clearly communicated on any of the government websites or the information provided to the public facing CRA personnel. As a result, a whole lot of people applied to serve in good faith, thinking they were eligible for the benefit, received the benefit, because more or less, if you just check the bot saying, yes, I'm eligible, the government sent out money. But towards the end of last year, CRA started trying to claw some of that back, which generated a fair bit of controversy and outrage, and it was announced this week that, yeah, no, actually, they're not going to do that. People who applied in good faith get to keep the serve money they received.
0: And not only that, those who paid it back when told to will probably get their Money back so they'll get their CERB again. It's the sec, at least the second confusion issue. There was another confusion over whether artists who had grant money and whether that counted as this net income versus gross income issue applied as well. And I'm glad they're doing the right thing, particularly since like it was a rushed policy, it had to be a rushed policy. It was largely applauded, and I think it did pretty well and having and at the high level the, the goal was to keep people
1: who didn't need to work out of places where they were risking spreading covid if they were forced to work it. or i guess there's to support people who lost jobs so they weren't going out trying to get Work and putting themselves back in positions where they were going to be exposed or potentially transmit. And, but because of that high-level policy objective, yeah, it's absolutely the right thing to do to be as broad and as generous as possible when it comes to distributing this and not be uh, overly concerned about eligibility requirements. And in the grand scheme of things, it's just not that big amount of money for the government, there were payouts up to $14,000, which even over a a decent number of people, that's just not that much compared to everything else the government spent money on. So they can afford to let this go in addition to just being the right thing to do.
0: And it's almost necessary to roll out something as ambitious again. We have alternate not sir, but COVID recovery benefits for people who've lost their jobs right now. But the labor force survey for January came out this past week and it was grim. Employment in the month of January alone fell by 213,000 across the country. And that was basically all in Quebec and Ontario, particularly among part-time service worker industries as those places had to shut down for new lockdowns. This pushed our unemployment to its highest level since August at 9.4%. The good news here in BC is our employment largely held steady. We've been doing good since the summer. Alberta, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, PEI even saw employment gains. But yeah, overall, totally wiped out by Central Canada's uh, really rough situation they've been in recently. We don't usually talk about the job numbers, but these ones are pretty, pretty big. And they can fluctuate a lot month by month, of course. So it's not usually worth looking at the individual month, but...
1: Yeah, typically, Stats Canada will try and seasonally adjust labor force numbers. Yeah, there isn't really a seasonal adjustment to COVID. So that's just how it goes. And you're going to see big swings. But yeah, unemployment sucks, but it's probably better than having governments be even more lackadaisical when it comes to dealing with COVID would have been better if we'd not let it get out of control this much to the first place. But since we are here, yeah, the restrictions are probably worth it even with some job loss, despite how much that sucks for the people involved. As long
0: as people are getting the new benefits. And getting some kind of supports because if we just have a bunch of unemployed people who are not getting any money it's just bad all around at least we need to f- I'll need to look into how these new benefits are working my suspicion is not as well speaking
1: of uh, bad all around uh, there's reporting this week from the Globe and Mail that Canada's visa application center in Beijing is actually run by a company controlled by the Chinese police, which just raises so many questions. So for visa applications, these are processed by a private company, and China's specific rules basically don't allow companies to operate in the country without a partner company a domestic partner company. Turns out this one, the... Oh god, I have no idea how to pronounce... I, Beijing... Change. I... Apologies, I have no idea. Foreign Service Company, which is the one operating these services, actually owned by the Beijing Municipal Public Security Bureau. We're not the only country to have this arrangement. I believe, was it Britain and Belgium? couple others do too, but nevertheless, it raises some pretty big security concerns because any information given for applying to Canada for visas will, in theory, despite the denials by China, also be accessible by the Chinese state security services, which is more than a little problematic considering any people trying to leave the country particularly persecuted minorities applying to leave the country can actually trigger reprisals by the chinese state so it is just an all around bad situation and you really gotta wonder why we let this be the situation rather than processing visa applications internally in the M- by the Canadian government in our embassy. turns
0: out outsourcing is bad. Take number 4762.
1: Yeah, but like you wouldn't have expected that, say, even in a peak of like the 80s downsizing of government stuff that the government would have outsourced the visa applications in Moscow to the KGB.
0: But they didn't necessarily know directly. They may have gone to this VFS Global whose headquarters is actually in Zurich and Dubai and does a lot of biometric work, but that's actually a subcontractor with this other company that's connected to the Beijing cops get if you're just trying to find the lowest bid, you may not do the proper due diligence. I would hope you do when you're dealing with people's personal data. It's worth noting here, there's no proof, hard proof that data is being leaked, as far as I can tell, from this company to the Chinese cops, but the whole thing doesn't feel good from a civil liberties perspective for sure.
1: I think it's yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely considering the general lack of distinction in China between state-run companies and the state itself, as well as the generally pretty aggressive totalitarian impulses of the current Chinese regime. I think the default assumption in this case should be that information here is making its way into the Chinese state security apparatus. So yeah, this has been a fairly long-standing contract. This did get uncovered fairly recently by the investigative journalists in the Globe and Mail. (sighs) Nevertheless, you've got to wonder how we, or why this was even there. We we did mention a bit about how maybe due diligence wasn't done, but (sighs) nevertheless, like Pete, I know China's become a more obvious geopolitical antagonist in recent years, but it still should have been raising alarm bells even at the time. And I don't know, it feels like every month or so, there's a new story about how the Canadian government isn't taking issues around the relationship with China as seriously as possible. And I don't know, Like you, you think you've reached the bottom of the naivete that, that Canada can have here and just keeps constantly surprising me. So I, don't know, I hope this is the last one, but
0: who knows? Well, from a detour to the Far East to return back to Eastern Canada for a few stories to wrap off the show on politics on the other side of the country. First up, we talked about the lockdowns that Ontario had to go through, causing such massive chaos. Part of that to the job market, part of that was triggered by people taking inappropriate vacations over the Christmas holidays. And this has led the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, in Ontario to decide to postpone their March break to mid April, essentially saying, we're not going to let you go away. We're just going to keep changing all your holidays. BC is not going to do the same.
1: This is such a like half-assed way to go about it. If you don't want people to travel, put in place the measures that are actually going to stop them from traveling directly. Don't try and do this roundabout way. Especially when they're just instead going to be continuing in-person education, which is going to be the case where you're now going to have just a hell of a lot more overlapping bubbles between the various families all connected through the schools. This doesn't really seem to me to like be the best way to go about it.
0: I just find it an interesting contrast with the like political social cultural approach here in British Columbia versus Ontario where there seems to be more of a We're going to do some heavy handed repressive things. Like, I remember there were stories of Ottawa police being and bylaw officers yelling at people for stopping together in parks, or like they closed parks very early and then had bylaw officers actually ticketing people for spending any time in a park when BC went a little bit more slowly on that and then went, oh, wait, it's actually fine to be outside most of the time as long as you're not just like in each other's face for. Thirty minutes, or sharing food. So there's just a lot that can be studied about how all the different provinces and different countries around the world have reacted to COVID.
1: Yeah, there. Every province seems to be going their own way on this, and there's. I don't think any of them have, at least any of the ones outside of Atlantic Canada have really managed to hit the right combination of activities to stop the spread and actually effectively do it this rather than just being a, I don't know, grab bag of various policies, some useful, some not. There's, yeah, I'm struggling to figure out the exact way to phrase this, but there's a, um not clearly as like outcome driven or, as it should be in most of the provinces. Trying to balance too many things, and it ends up just turning into a bit of a mess. But speaking of things that are a bit of a mess, the province of Newfoundland is is in the process of an election right now, and there is now a spike in cases there, leading to the chief electoral officer wanting to Postpone voting in 18 of the 40 constituencies, mostly in the St. John's area and
0: the Avalon Peninsula. So when we say spike in cases, they had 16 active cases last Sunday, and today they posted 210, which is significantly higher than the current proportional... Per capita number of cases we have going on here in BC. I crunch the numbers roughly. They have about 1.2 per 100,000 people. We have 0.8.
1: And they've total reported, I think, 610 cases over the course of the pandemic. 100 of them were in the last day of reporting, which means a full 20% of the entire pandemic is yesterday there. So th- there's clearly a big spreading event going on or things are growing at a pretty unsustainable rate.
0: And I think that led to a lot of fear within the Newfoundland elections offices where off workers were literally resigning out of fear about being exposed to the public on election day this weekend. So I think it's worth contrasting yeah, with there, like BC's election where we were seeing rising numbers, but nothing like This.
1: Yeah, so I kind of two thoughts on this. One, I I know Newfoundland's been doing pretty well up until now, but they should have had stronger contingencies in place. where if there was an outbreak, if they didn't have the staff available due to pandemic considerations, they were able to get around that without having to postpone nearly half the election and have them vote on a different time or day. On the other hand, it is good they're at least paying attention to what is going on with the pandemic and being very cognizant of the case numbers, unlike what happened here where we had steadily rising case numbers and everyone uh, pretty much ignored it throughout the entire election campaign, which isn't good.
0: We were pretty lucky. We also, I think, didn't have the new variants, so our... Pan- the pandemic in October was a little more predictable than it is right now. It,
1: it was still like climbing every, more or less every day. Like we were on an upward trajectory, and basically everyone pretended it wasn't happening during the election campaign, which was I don't know, irresponsible, I think.
0: In hindsight, it worked.
1: Did it though? We were. We went from what 100, 200 cases a day in early September at Moat, maybe even in the double digits, to at the end of the fall, early winter, in four to 600 range. Like it was not a good outcome.
0: So we rose at the same time that every other province in Canada rose while we had an election. We can say maybe that affected it, but I don't think the correlation is strong given given the contingencies across the pro- country. I was trying to look to see when the remaining 18 constituencies in Newfoundland would hold their actual election, and I could not figure it out. I think they've just postponed them arbit- indefinitely, as far as I can tell, unless I missed something.
1: So I understand that the election officer there has Relatively limited power, but he's trying to talk the chief medical officer into her exercising her power to more effectively or more legitimately postpone things. It, it sounds like just a bit of a mess overall, and uh, this ought to make the federal government much more cautious about the prospect of calling an election during this continued wave of outbreaks across the country. And definitely, it would not be prudent to do so without Elections Canada being very well prepared, including with all the contingencies in situations like Newfoundland's experiencing or worse.
0: Let's go to 100% mail-in ballots. The- I,
1: that, that would actually be a good idea. Just default vote by mail would be a much better way to the, do it. And the other, I'm fine waiting two weeks to find out who the prime minister is going to be. Like It's not really a big deal if we have to yeah, extend that the caretaker period out slightly.
0: Yeah, the waiting period is going to be quite a while in Newfoundland. They're not going to announce the winner in the 22 ridings that are holding the election this weekend until the others have voted, which creates a weird situation where the election kind of continues in half the province, even if it's not in person, and issues may change. But many people have already cast their ballots. So, like, technically, our yeah, election is you know, a bunch of individual races, but they also all come together. This is a weird situation. And finally, in the Maritimes, Nova Scotia has its new premier. The Nova Scotia Liberal delegates have chosen Ian Rankin, former Minister of Lands and Forestry and former Minister of Environment, and person who's only two years older than me to replace outgoing Premier Stephen McNeil. Rankin is 37, and he focused his campaign on generational change and a green economy. And that about extends my Nova Scotia Ian Rankin political knowledge.
1: I don't think I have really much else to add to that. Other than, I didn't even realize there were still delegated conventions going on, but everyone had moved over to the one-member, one-vote model. So it's nice to see that bit of tradition staying alive in the Maritimes.
0: If there was anywhere they were going to still do it by delegated convention, it would be the Maritime Liberal parties and possibly the PCs out there, but definitely the Liberals where it's just, that's just how things have always been done since those parties first ran the province in 1867 and almost uninterrupted since. Anyway, congratulations, Ian Rankin. I hope to accomplish half as much in the next two years as you have in yours.
1: And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.